Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler and your host for today's episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer, an insurance recovery podcast. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, chair of the Lowenstein Sandler Insurance Recovery Group. In today's episode, we're going to be tackling that brave new frontier of securing DNO insurance for SPACs and DSPACs. So special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, have taken the investment community by storm and, at least for the moment, appear to be largely displacing the traditional IPO market. The SPAC wave seems to have started in the early days of the pandemic and has boomed to the point where in February 2021 alone, it was reported that 132 issuers went public in February, including 98 SPACs, raising an astonishing $37 billion in proceeds. Those are some truly historic figures. So in today's episode, we're going to peel the onion back about as to why SPACs have grown so much in popularity and consider whether SPACs pose more or less risk than the traditional IPO model. We're going to discuss the unique challenges that currently exist in the DNO space as insurers are scrambling to keep up with the dizzying pace of the deals and limit and risk appetite and capacity seem to be reaching a breaking point. I'm thrilled to have with me today two leading authorities in this space. My partner, Valeska Peterson-Hintz, is a corporate lawyer who's been knee-deep in the IPO and SPAC space for years, and I'm pleased to welcome back Rob Crochito from ARC Excess and Surplus Lines. Rob has decades' worth of experience placing DNO insurance for public and private companies. Both Rob and Valeska have spent much of the last year on the wild roller coaster ride that is the SPAC and DSPAC market. So to begin, I think it would be useful to level set the parameters of our discussion. So welcome, Valeska, and why don't you give us an overview of IPOs, SPACs, and DSPACs? What are the pros and cons of each model? Sure. So an IPO is, you know, to state the obvious, the first time you sell a company's securities to the public on a registration statement. But the important thing to keep in mind that, you know, we kind of forget because we do it all the time is it's the company shares that we're selling. A SPAC is different. A SPAC is a financial product, basically. So in the IPO, the context in the SPAC world is the SPAC's fundraising. It's a SPAC fundraising event, not the target. So the SPAC itself, you know, in a nutshell, what it does is it raises the money in a blank check IPO, and then it puts that money in a pot, what we call a trust account, and it locks it away. And then they go look for a private company to merge with. And that initial business combination is what everybody refers to as the DSPEC. So at the close of the business combination, you know, the private company gets that pot of money that they raised and the SPAC public shareholders get stock in the combined entity. And then the target has raised money and went public. So it's slightly different in terms of like pros and cons for the model. If you, if you were looking at that, it's a little hard because there's different constituencies, but I'll try to bucket them that way. But for pros, you know, you're looking at a target that's getting access to the public markets for the SPAC. And then depending on the SPAC and its investor base, it can also give you access to really good institutional investors and a broad investor base. That's going to take a little bit of diligence on your end as the target to see who the SPAC is. Then it can also be a faster timeline than an IPO. Usually you could get approval in something like three to five months and be public effectively. 
You can also market without concern for quiet periods and gun jumping like you would have in an IPO. And you can use financial projections, which is helpful for pre-revenue companies. It's also easier to you know, take it public as a SPAC than an IPO in a lot of ways. They've already raised money through the IPO. A lot of them already have you know, pipes lined up or investors that are ready to do the pipes. There's for existing target shareholders outside of like the DNO and the big shareholders. A lot of times there's no or limited lockups for the target shareholders. And that's kind of nice. Another thing, you know, in the past, this wasn't true, but like what Linda was saying about all the energy and excitement in this market, now there is a lot of marketing buzz and credibility that you can get as, you know, being a public company, but also doing this through a SPAC. And also you're getting sponsor expertise where in theory, you know, there's rather than a bunch of underwriters that kind of disappear, the sponsor will often leave people on the board and in management occasionally. So you're getting, you know, a different set of expertise. And then for the public SPAC investors, they have some unusual downside protection because that cash, you know, the pot that I was talking about that's in the trust account, that's being stored so that in a couple of situations, but mainly the business combination, they can redeem their money and take it back. So it gives them some flexibility that also, you know, for looking at the cons, if you're the target, that's some deal side risk because there's uncertainty as to how much is coming out of the trust account. And you really don't know until, you know, two days before that shareholder meeting. So it's, it's risky in that respect. And, you know, like I was saying, you get some sponsor expertise, but keep in mind that that means unlike an IPO, it's not a neutral tool, but it's a partnership. So you have to think about it that way. It also has a shorter timeline for the SPAC. There's two years that they have to get these deals done in. And then when you're looking at the target side, you know, traditionally, there's a lot of time for you to get in front of this company and start preparing them to go public. And you're thinking about the IPO. These SPACs have gotten on the scene fairly recently. They typically do less diligence than an IPO. There's less time to prep the companies in an IPO and, you know, that can get a little bit dicey at times, depending on how quick you're pushing things, how prepared the company is. And then lastly, in terms of cons, there is the consideration of dilution. You know, the sponsors are getting 20%, there's warrant coverage, there's pipes. So all those things are something to think about. This is a little bit of an alphabet soup. You've mentioned it a couple of times. So we've, <laughs> we've, we've explained IPO, SPAC, and DSPAC. Just give us the acronym for PIPE. What is that? Pipe is a public in investment in private equity. So what we talk about with that is when we have a public company or a company that can register shares, sometimes they'll do the investment privately and then they'll just do it based on, they'll say, hey, we're going to do a resale registration statement in a short period of time and we'll get you on there. So you know, usually it's something like 90 days. It could be shorter, like 30. There's a little chill going down my insurance spine as things happen very quickly. It seems like maybe there might be a lot of more risk factor and a lot of more claims coming out of this, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But first, I'd like to know, Valeska, do you think that we're at the beginning, in the middle, or near the end of this SPAC, DSPAC wave? Where are we at in the process, you think? Yeah, so I think we're more towards the beginning. Like you were mentioning, you know, the February numbers were were kind of crazy, right? But to put that in a little bit more context from, from what I've been seeing recently, from 2020 was supposed to be the year of the SPAC, right? Everybody said this is the capital market story of 2020. But so far in 2021, if you're looking even not just at February, but just from like January 1 to date, SPAC IPOs have raised almost $65 billion over 231 deals compared to all of last year, raising approximately 80 billion across 237 deals. So that gives you a sense of how many, how many, and I'm like working on one actively right now where we're doing an IPO for a SPAC. So 
And that's one, right? There's so many of these things going on. BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, you know, everybody's looking out for his annual letter to see what he has to say. So he kind of captivates the market and his take from what he said, he was suggesting that SPACs could come to replace the traditional IPO process. Now, I don't know that that's true. That's a little aggressive, but the popularity has definitely been propelled by involvement with credible, experienced and backers, you know, like Michael Klein, Bill Ackman. So it's, it's something that doesn't seem like it's going to fade anytime in the near future. You have Goldman Sachs suggesting that it could be something, you know, north of 300 billion worth of SPAC stock they'd be issued in the next two years. So it's, it's kind of shocking on the back end of that, you know, this is the front end. Everybody's raising money. Then they're going out and looking at a target. If they don't get that target within a two-year period, they can extend. But at some point, they have to wind down. And so the real question, I think, at the end of the day is, are there really enough like good, prepared private companies out there that are ready to do this transaction that aren't ready on their own IPO track and want to do that. And even with IPOs, traditionally, you know, you'd have companies that were dual tracked where they would file an S1 or a DRS. And like, once they became publicly known that they were going public, you'd have somebody swoop in and buy them. So who's the pool left? Because a lot of them have been picked over and over this next year, a lot more will be picked over. So I guess one of the questions in my mind is, are we going to run out of targets that are kind of ready and want to use this process? And that's going to transition us beautifully into my next question, because as I said, I'm an insurance lawyer who is skeptical and sees all of the pain and suffering of deals that have gone wrong. So what are the risk factors? You know, this speed, the speed with which this is happening, and you just touched on a, a perfect additional risk factor, which is as you're nearing your two-year period, end period coming up, you're going to get desperate and just scoop up whatever's around and maybe not the best, Right. So what are some of the, the risks that we need to be thinking about? And I'm particularly interested in whether regulators are starting to have their ears perk up and maybe look at these deals a little bit closer, given their yeah. proliferation. Yeah. So I, I look at it kind of in, in two, two groups. One is like, what are, what's the main risk in my mind for SPACs that are going public? And one thing that I like to remind people is that you have to make sure, you know, when you're in the IPO process for your SPAC, that you're not having meaningful conversations with targets before you close that IPO. Just as like a, a shout out, please remember that. And then with respect to the DSPAC transaction there, there's a lot of risk. And I think the risk is in diligence and undisclosed risk. Investors have sought to hold SPACs and their sponsors liable for a variety of, of alleged misstatements recently. Some of them, or a lot of them have kind of included the financial outlook of target companies and, you know, lack of the level of diligence that you'd be performing by the SPAC. There's a lot of ways, you know, to mitigate this risk if you're looking at that, you know, and, and I think it's like, go back to your IPO. How would you do this in an IPO? You know, in an IPO, you're conducting, like you're saying, Linda, like thorough due diligence. And that's what you traditionally would do in an IPO. You have, you know, many right now, potential security claims that could be brought, but you have to show negligence or recklessness or knowing wrongdoing and others have a due diligence defense, not all of them, but there's a lot. And so that does provide a lot of help. And then also, you know, doing due diligence helps with the next point, which is, you know, be cautious about what you say in your proxy statement prospectus. Like if you're going to include the appropriate caveats concerning the source of the information, how, you know, what kind of disclosures you're making, are there disclaimers for forward-looking statements? What are those forward-looking statements based on? And do your risk factors properly cover that? Are you letting them know what assumptions you're making? And then also, you know, the SEC has been really focused on, 
full disclosure of potential conflicts of interest. And Jay Clayton, I think, I can't remember if it was last year, but it was somewhat recently had said that one, one of the areas in the SPAC space that the SEC was particularly focused on is the incentives and compensation that the SPAC sponsors are receiving. And he listed out a couple of questions. It was how much equity do they have now? How much of the equity do they have at the time of the IPO like transaction? And what are their incentives? So, and, and just to kind of round it out, these risks aren't just theoretical. Claims have really been asserted against SPACs. And, you know, for example, Waiter right now is in a litigation and it was a SPAC target in 2018. The deal closed. What they did is they claimed that they were at or near profitability. And then right now they're currently subject to a lawsuit that alleges that the company created an illusion of profitability through illicit means, which isn't really what you want to see in a press release coming out. It's not great news, right? But if you if you look at what happened, it's a textbook case. They did a lot of stuff that they shouldn't, and, and this is still working its way through the court. So, you know, who knows? But a lot of people kind of been pointing to this case and saying, oh, this might be a model for further securities action litigation down the road. But these guys provided a bunch of financial projections and didn't disclose that these projections and a lot of the statements in their perspectives really relied on them drastically increasing prices to their customer base. And so in order to support all of this, and it also required them to refuse to honor existing contracts that were at those low rates. And so instead, the prospectus said, hey, we have this great competitive advantage because of these really low rates we're charging our customers. And their customers were in underserved small restaurants. They're basically sort of trying to operate in, you know, DoorDash, Chow Now, Grubhub space. But were, you know, they were saying, hey, we can undercut everybody, retain all these small underserved customers. And then after raising money, the company basically ad- admitted, oh, not even just after the SPAC transaction, but after they raised money again, they came out almost a year later and said, oh yeah, those low rates, we really couldn't maintain those. Those small underserved customers can't really afford it. And we're going to have to increase prices substantially. And you know what was interesting is the, the allegations when you're looking at the complaint, they talked about the SPAC sponsor had really touted in their S1 when they went public saying, hey, we're great at restaurants. We really understand the restaurant industry. In fact, we have this billionaire restauranteur who has done all these massive chain restaurants that are super popular. And a lot of them are in the prime locations, prime markets, like amazing restaurants. And he's really going to help. And they said he did nothing. He barely did anything. There's like a button at the bottom of this website that, you know, you can attribute to that other restaurants in his space have, but he even admitted himself that the rates that they have to charge to make this company profitable, his prime customer restaurants couldn't afford it. And so what you ended up seeing was over a five month period, the stock went from a $15 high to a dollar and 89 cents at close. And they lost 800 million in market cap. So it was, it was shocking. And of course that results in lawsuits. So Rob, I bet you got a call. (laughs) <laughs> for a claim like that. So, so tell us, Rob, you know, is that kind of a fact pattern insurable and, and just give us the bigger, the broader view of what is the state of play for getting coverage for SPACs and these DSPAC transactions? It's not easy. And it's not easy because the market is saturated, right? So well, let's, let's look at it like this. There are, I don't know, maybe a little more than a dozen insurance companies that can really ensure a SPAC correctly. And then you say there's probably a handful of those can do a primary correctly. 
And what I mean correctly, I mean with the, with the right coverage. You know, many insurance companies have limitations because these SPACs are two-year transactions. So you need a two-year DNO policy. Companies that are heavily reliant on reinsurance, some of them don't have the ability within their reinsurance treaties to offer a two-year policy. So they're not viable options, right? When you look at the number of SPACs that have come out, I mean, of the, you know, 650 that took place in the last whatever, 10 years, 437 of them came out in the last 14 months. And we're looking at 143 of the last 190 billion raised coming out in the last 14 months. What else is the plaintiff's bar going to focus on? This is in the white hot spotlight. And I'm thinking from an underwriter's perspective, right? Because those are the people I have to try to get these, these quotations from. So it's challenging, but there are a number of very good players, Sampo, Excel, Beasley, QBE, Axis, AIG. They, if, if they like the SPAC, they'll quote it. And what makes them like the SPAC? It's, it's, a, it's a combination of the industry that they're going to focus in, the level of quality with regards to the sponsor, what the sponsor's track record is in similar type entities and, and how well they've performed, if they have prior SPAC experience, how well it turned out. And they also look at the size of the SPAC. So it's a lot easier getting a SPAC place that's 100 or 200 million versus we have ones we're working on now that are over half a billion in, in the raise. They're not easy to get done. That's, 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 that's a task. So those are some of the challenges we see. And underwriters are fearful. They're fearful in a sense that the way the SPACs are set up, because if they don't get a deal done, they're not getting paid. I mean, if they don't, you know, you have to return this money if you don't get this deal done. So what happens is you have so many SPACs out there chasing, like, like Valeska said earlier, chasing the same, there's only a limited number of quality targets. And the fear becomes, are we going to do a deal with an inferior target because we just want to get the deal done? Or are, in some cases, are we going to do a deal with a target that's not in line with the way we said we were going to come out in our prospectus? You know, a different industry. I think the other fear in the minds of underwriters is some of the targets are not ready to enter, like Valeska said, the public space. You know, it's happening so quickly. An IPO takes, you know, six to 10 months to, to, to do. Plus all the prep time, right, Rob? Like beforehand where you're getting these guys ready and telling them all the stuff they should be thinking about. That's, that's gone. There's no time for that here. No, it's, 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 I want my money. Well, how fast can I get my insurance and how much is it going to cost me? And what happens is some of these companies, they're not ready culturally to be public. They don't know how to communicate information to the street. I did one a while back. They didn't have a, a CFO in place with public experience until two weeks before the business combination. So these things tend to raise the eyebrows of, of the underwriters. And what, what is happening as of late, and if you look at the waiter case and you look at the Akazu case and the Nicola case, on those three cases, you have situations where the SPAC's DNO policy, the tail is in play from a claim perspective. The private company's tail is in play from a claim perspective. And the DSPAC going forward public company's DNO insurance is in play. The plaintiff's bar has three limits to go after. <laughs> yeah, the insurers aren't going to be loving that. And it will get very complicated when you have three different insurers issuing each one of those policies. 
right? <laughs> Let the finger pointing begin. All right, Rob, before we wrap up here, can you just talk briefly about how you get your DNO policy to align with the life cycle of the SPAC? One of the concerns that I have in, in investigating this area is making sure that you've got full prior acts coverage and then you just touched on the tail. Like, How do we put this cradle to grave coverage in place? Right. So the first thing we do, let's focus on the, on the public SPAC first. So we put in place a public DNO policy for the SPAC entity. Okay, and that policy will be written for a two-year period. There'll be a predetermined runoff or tail in that policy. And that policy will run until such time as the business combination has been consummated with the target. Okay, so there's policy number one. Policy number two, in most cases, is the private company that targets DNO insurance that's in place. And Usually the target has a DNO policy in place. Sometimes it doesn't, and we have to make provisions to get them coverage to cover anything that happened from that target, from the inception of its corporate existence forward. And that target's DNO insurance will run until also when the business combination is consummated. And then we have the third policy that comes into play, which is the DSPAC, the, the going forward public company DNO policy. And that policy will typically be written with prior acts, but it will usually pick up the roadshow activities of the private company because of the SEC exclusion that would take place in the private company's DNO insurance. So we have three platforms, the SPAC's DNO and its life cycle, the private company or the target company's DNO and its life cycle. And then we have the going forward public DSPAC company and its life cycle. And it's very important that when this deal is being done, that your attorneys are making certain that the effective dates line up, that the coverages line up. Because if you have a one day gap between the going forward policy uh, for the for the public entity and the private company's tail, you could have no coverage for the entire transaction because you have a gap. And the underwriters, if they can find it, if the claims folks can find a gap, they're going to point it out and it's going to create all kinds of problems. Very important that you get your corporate attorneys to review that transaction from an insurance perspective. It needs to be done with someone who has an insurance background, especially someone who's proficient in directors and offices liability. And also to start it early, like I'm a deal attorney. So one of the first things I do when we start a deal, you know, DSPAC or like the SPAC IPO is to reach out to Linda and her team and Rob and start getting the right coverage in place because you really have to start very early. And if you don't, it's going to delay the deal. Great. Right. Well, I'd like to thank both Valeska and Rob for joining us today. There's one thing that's certain from this discussion, which is we're at the front end of the insurance issues, right? So the deals are going to keep happening. And as Rob, you mentioned, the lawsuits tend to lag a couple of years behind after the deals have happened and expectations haven't been met. So we'll certainly be happy to have you both come back and we'll do maybe a, a snapshot year in review this time, 2022. But I really do appreciate your time and your knowledge today. And we'll see everybody next time. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Linda. Thanks, Valeska. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast. Or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.